0: I invite you this morning to Romans chapter 15, Romans 15, and our focus today is on verses seven through verse 13. In these seven verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, the apostle Paul is bringing to a close everything that he's been saying in chapter 14 and chapter 15 so far. And the main theme over these two chapters has been how we treat one another, how we accept one another within the body of Christ, when we have differences of opinion on what Paul calls disputable matters. And we've seen in Romans 14 and 15 that these disputable matters probably relate to the Mosaic law and different ways of understanding what is still on our shoulders in terms of what we still have to obey and follow as the people of God from the Mosaic Law, from the Old Covenant. And so you had Jewish people coming out of the Jewish faith. You had Gentile God-fearers coming from the Jewish faith who were very sensitive to issues of Mosaic Law, such as what you could eat, what you could drink, certain feast days and holy days. And when they came into the body of Christ as believers in Jesus, the Messiah, they still had very sensitive consciences with regard to those issues. Those who had understood the implications of the gospel and and had seen more how the the overarching plan of God for the ages and how the old covenant is transitioning to the new covenant uh, had more of a free view of how we relate to certain prescriptions of the Mosaic Law. And so for the Apostle Paul, he was a part of that group who understood that now that we're in the New Covenant, now we're under the Law of Christ, and the Gospels being preached to the nations, we're no longer bound by certain of these prescriptions of the Mosaic Law. We can can eat all foods. All foods are declared clean by God. We can, in our conscience, if the Lord allows us, in good faith and conscience, we can see every day as alike, every day is being a holy day to the Lord. And and so Paul viewed himself as a part of the strong, but he was sensitive to the fact that there were still people within the church, in the churches in Rome, who were still part of what he calls the weak. And we need to treat one another with respect and with care and for the, with the sake of love for one another. And now, before I get into the text this morning, I just want to go back and and make a kind of a clarifying point about this whole passage. And that is, Paul calls the disagreements between these groups within the church in Rome, he calls them disputable matters. Things where one person saw it one way and another person saw it another way. Now, there are some things that fall within that category of disputable matters. So, issues of Mosaic Law that have to do with the Old Covenant. You know, Paul specifically mentions those in Romans 14, Sabbath days, feast days, certain foods or drinks that you can or cannot eat or drink. But what I want to make sure that we understand is that not everything can fit within that category of disputable matters. There are some things that scripture commands positively or forbids negatively that cannot be shoehorned into disputable matters. So, for example, the the New Testament, the New Covenant is very clear that you can't steal one another's property. Right? That that was in the Law of Moses, but that's still an obligation that we have as Christians under the New Covenant. We can't go around stealing other people's stuff. Um, The Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, said you're not to lust, you're not to covet after what is your neighbor's, your neighbor's things or your neighbor's wife, you're not supposed to covet. That's still a new covenant command, isn't it? To, to not covet, not commit adultery, not murder. All those things are still a part of how we should live out the Christian life as, as new covenant Christians. Those things are not up for debate, are they? Those things are not what you could classify as disputable matters. Now, let me talk about one that is, let me, let me mention two and, 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 these two are often talked about in evangelical churches. And I don't, I don't want it to become like these are the only two issues that we care about. But these are the two issues that are under great assault in our culture today. And one of those is abortion. And another one is the Bible's ethic or morality on sexuality. Those things are not disputable matters. So whether or not it is lawful or right or moral to a- abort an unborn child, that is not a disputable matter. That is not something where a Christian in good conscience can say, well, I just disagree with you about that and we can still get along. In scripture, abortion is murder. It's, it's murder. It is a violation of the command, thou shalt not murder. It's not a disputable matter. Likewise, the Bible's ethic on sexuality is not a disputable matter. You know, our cult we have we have whole denominations of churches that have fully embraced modern society's view of sexuality. Whole denominations. What was, you know, a hundred years ago would be considered the mainline Protestant denominations in the United States of America. The United Methodist Church. Presbyterian Church, United USA. Lutheran Church. Many large denominations, Episcopalian, large denominations that 100, 120 years ago still believe the gospel, have been drifting for a long time now and in the last generation, have fully embraced the the agenda of homosexuality and gender dysphoria of you can be male, female, whatever you choose you want to be. These, These liberal churches have fully embraced that. Can I say, dogmatically, from Scripture, those are not disputable matters. In Acts chapter 15, they were discussing disputable matters. Paul and the apostles got together in Jerusalem, and they were discussing these very issues of how the Gentiles that are now included in the body of Christ, how should we relate to one another? What aspects of the Mosaic law should we continue to place on on them and have them uphold? And one of the ones, there are very few issues that they decided on at that Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, one of the things they clearly decided was circumcision is no longer required. To be a part of the people of God, we are not going to require the, the, the sign of the old covenant of circumcision to be part of the people of God. But one of the other things they said very clearly was that Gentiles, all those who are coming into the people of God, trusting in Jesus by faith, they must abstain from sexual immorality. And they just throw it out there as a, a blanket statement of sexual immorality, abstain from it. Where would the content of what sexual immorality is? where would that content come from? the Old Testament? And so the Old Testament said that homosexuality is wrong and it is an abomination before the Lord. Some would say, again, more liberal, those who have drifted and embraced society's doctrine, would say, no, that that was old Mosaic law. We are now under the new covenant. We are now free in grace. And they would go to Romans 14 and 15 and maybe say, you know what, let's just agree to disagree on this matter, and the Apostle Paul would in no way ever place homosexuality within this category of disputable matters. One reason I know that is because in this same very letter, in chapter 1, he describes homosexuality as one of the key marks of a reprobate culture. A culture that has been completely given over to its depravity has basically been abandoned by God to go deeper and deeper into depths of depravity unto their own judgment. One of the signs of that is a society that has given up the bounds of nature on sexuality and gender and said, We're going to do whatever we want. Paul says of those people, they have suppressed the truth, they're darkened in their understanding. They they have, they've lied to themselves and to one another and they are depraved and they need the gospel of grace. But that is not within disputable matters. So there are some things that we can agree to disagree on and still be in the same body of Christ. Lesser matters of Christian practice. And again, I may get into huge hot water trouble for saying this, but we can disagree about whether or not it, it is okay, lawful for a Christian to take a drink of alcohol. We can disagree about that. Now, we can't disagree about drunkenness, okay? We can't disagree about drunkenness. We can't disagree about intoxication. Intoxication and drunkenness in the Bible is wrong. It is sinful. Can we disagree about taking any drink of alcohol as a beverage. I believe we can still be Christians, we can still relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and have a disagreement about that. Now, I, for myself, do not drink alcohol, have never drank alcohol. I don't consider it a wise practice, and I consider it something to be very addictive, and something that leads to trouble. So I think there are principles of wisdom that speak against it, but I'm not going to say someone is not a Christian or someone is in disobedience to God if they have one glass of wine a week, okay? I'm I'm just not going to say that. Again, I may get in huge trouble for saying that, but Jesus turned water into wine, right? It was wine. It wasn't grape juice. He turned water into wine. That doesn't mean that we can all go out and become intoxicated, That's a disputable matter, okay? Homosexuality is not a disputable matter. The the doctrine of the Trinity is not a disputable matter. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, that is not a disputable matter. So there are some things that we can agree to disagree on as Christians and still relate to one another in love. There are some things that we can't disagree on and still be considered part of the faith, part of the people of God. Now, that was all before the passage. Okay. Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. Paul says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom and give us openness of heart to receive your truth today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In this passage, Paul addresses an exhortation to us, the reasons for that exhortation, and then he concludes with a prayer for all of us. And so first of all, the exhortation. The exhortation is simple, and that is to accept one another in unity. The whole point of this whole passage in Romans 14 to 15 has been this principle of acceptance. In fact, Paul is ending this section the way he began it. Chapter 14 began with accept one another, and he's ending it the same way, accept one another. See one another as a part of the family of God. Accept one another. And so the key theme here is unity, that we would be one body in Christ. And you can see from this passage that what Paul has in mind specifically is a union of all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds with different understandings of what they, they, how they should please God, and they're coming together and they're being united in one people. So you have Jews coming out of strict adherence to the Mosaic law. You also have pagan Gentiles who are hearing the gospel for the first time and they're trusting in Christ by the power of God, and they're all coming together in one body. And Paul says that's exactly what God wants. That's exactly what God wants. People of all races, people of all social classes, people of who are wealthy, poor, male, female, slave, free, everyone coming together in one body of Christ. Unity. And just to go back to chapter 14 and mention a few of the things that Paul said there, what does he mean by accepting one another in unity? One, without arguing and getting into debates with one another. He says that back in chapter 14, when he very first said, accept one another, he said, accept one another and not for the sake of disputing, not for the sake of getting into arguments and disagreements with with one another. So accept one another and don't get into debates, endless debate about these things. Secondly, accept one another without condescension, without condescension, without one looking down on the other. And specifically in this passage, that is the temptation of the strong to the weak. The temptation of the strong who have a fuller understanding of the word of God to the weak, to those who are maybe new to the faith and still have very sensitive consciences, the, the temptation is to look down on, to condescend, to say, I am higher, I'm above, I have reached a greater state of maturity. And Paul says, don't, don't accept them, but with a, an air of superiority to condescend down to them and thirdly vice versa those who are weak should not look to the strong and say i'm in, i'm judging you because i don't think what you're doing is right so accepting one another in unity without argument without condescension and without judgmentalism that's what paul desires that's the exhortation what's the reason what's the reason and the reason is a very gospel-centered reason. First of all is the grace of Christ. Why should we accept one another? He says, because Christ accepted us. That's our reason. Why should we accept one another in unity? Why should we welcome and love one another? Because Christ did that for us. Can you imagine two parties more unalike, more dissimilar than God, the holy righteous one, and fallen sinners. That's a pretty diverse group, isn't it? A lot of things not in common between a holy righteous God and a sinful rebellious people. And yet, what did God do in Christ? He accepted us. He accepted us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God justifies not the righteous. God justifies the ungodly. Those who aren't perfect, those who have sinned, those who have fallen. God through Christ by faith justifies them and welcomes them. So the first reason why we should welcome one another is because Christ welcomed us. The grace of Christ So the grace of Christ. A second reason why we should accept one another is the promises of God. And Paul puts a great emphasis in this passage on the previous promises of God. And he quotes from three or four different places in the Old Testament to show these promises of God. So what do these promises of God have to do with? He says in verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews On behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. In other words, what he's saying is, this unity, this coming together as one people, that is a fulfillment of what God has promised in Scripture. Christ came to save the descendants of Abraham. Christ was made a servant for the sake of Israel, it says, for the sake of the Jewish people on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. What did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. What did he say to Jacob? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. You're going to be my people. What did he say to David? To David, he said, you're always going to rule on the throne. I'm going to have one of your descendants always rule on the throne. God made promises to the patriarchs, to the people of Israel. In Christ, he has fulfilled them. But beyond that, Christ, God also made promises that extended beyond the people of Israel, didn't he? God made promises that extended beyond the people of Israel. And that started from the very first moment he made a promise to Abraham. Because his very first promise to Abraham said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a great name. And he said to Abraham, Through you, I'm going to bless all families of the earth. In other words... God's blessing was going to flow to Abraham, but not just flow to Abraham, flow through Abraham to the world. And so God's promises to Abraham are also promises that extend to the world. And that's where Paul goes next, because he says in verse 9, And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the promises of God to both the Jews and to the Gentiles are fulfilled in Christ's work of redemption when he accepted us. And then he quotes several different places from the Old Testament. And it's very interesting what he does. Paul may have done this purposefully, but he quotes at least one verse from each of the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible. The law, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law, the prophets, and the writings. In essence to say, the whole Hebrew Scriptures, the whole collection of Hebrew Scriptures testifies to this. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And so he quotes here in verse 9 from Psalm 18, verse 49. Therefore I will praise you among the whom? The Gentiles. The nations. I will sing the praises of your name again it says in verse number 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. So this is from the law, from the Torah, Moses, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. What is Paul doing with these quotes? What Paul is doing with these quotes is showing that the work of Christ and the plan of God for salvation has always, from the beginning, been intended to flow to Israel, but not stop with Israel, to flow through Israel to the nations. Even going back to the time of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, verse 11, he quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples, the nations, plural, the diversity of peoples across the world, let them extol and praise God. And then the verse that we read a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, the root of Jesse will spring up. Who's that? That's the Messiah, isn't it? That's Jesus, the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the branch who comes out of the line of David. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and in him the Gentiles will hope. So from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms, the writings, the whole Hebrew Bible testifies to the fact that it was always God's plan to bring together Jews and Gentiles as one body in unified praise to God. So the grace of Christ the promises of God, and the third reason for why we should be unified body is for the glory of God. And that's really the ultimate reason. Everything that God does, everything, His whole plan, it all flows to His own glory, doesn't it? And throughout this whole passage, you can see this emphasis on the glory of God. At the end of verse 1, he says, We have been accepted by Christ in order to bring praise to God. In verse 9, he says, moreover, so that the Gentiles would be included, so that they might glorify God for his mercy. And all of these passages from the Old Testament that Paul quotes have in mind the praise and the glory of God. Jews and Gentiles together with God's people as one. Jesus said while he was here, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. There will be one shepherd, one fold. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that out of these two, God is creating one new man, one body, one church. And that's his emphasis here in the book of Romans. And really throughout the whole book of Romans, you can see this theme developing of the relation between Jews and Gentiles, can't you? You can see that running through the whole letter and here he's kind of bringing it all to a climax and saying this has always been God's plan that Jews and Gentiles would be a part of one body in Christ in unified praise to God for the glory of God. And then he ends verse 13 with a prayer. Here's his prayer for the Roman Christians and I'm going to take it and extend it as his prayer for us as well. As believers in Christ. So here's our prayer. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are three specific requests in there. One is that we would be filled with joy. Filled with joy. And by the way, he says, As you are believing, while you're believing, While you're trusting in Christ, may you be filled with joy. You've heard this said before. Joy is not dependent on the circumstances that you find yourself in. Joy is not dependent on whether you are in good times or bad times. Christian joy, the the fruit of the Spirit, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. So if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, then it cannot ebb and flow, be dependent on the different circumstances that we find ourselves in life. Joy is something that comes from inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. So that with Paul, by the power of the Spirit, we can say, I've learned to be content, whether I'm poor or whether I'm rich, whether I have nothing or whether I have everything. Paul lists out all the things that he has gone through. He says, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, I've been left for dead, I've been imprisoned. Did Paul have joy? Paul had joy in Christ. Did that mean that he'd never hurt? No, he hurt. His body hurt. There were times that Paul cried. There were times that Paul expressed sorrow. But joy is something that, that it kind of overshadows all of those things. Joy can sustain us in times of pain. Joy can sustain us in times of sorrow. It, it's a joy that is that transcends the circumstances. That's his prayer for us. Filled with joy. He also says, filled with peace. Filled with peace. And, and what does he mean here by peace? Sometimes peace has the idea of, of relations being restored to people who are, you know, not together being reconciled at peace here being filled with peace may have the idea of, of a sense of calmness, a sense of security, a sense of peace of mind, if you will, a sense of confidence. Again, not ebbing and flowing with the circumstances, but founded on the promises of Christ. How can we have that kind of peace in a tumultuous world is because we know and trust in the promises of God. And then finally, he says, overflowing with hope. Overflowing with hope. He wants us to be filled with joy, filled with peace, and he wants us to be overflowing, abounding in hope. And the idea here of of abounding or overflowing is, is literally to have so much that your cup is running over to be super abounding in hope. What is hope? Hope in the scriptures is not a wish in the sense of, I hope so, or I hope this works out, or I wish that this would work out, or this is a longing or a desire. I, I really wish that this would come true. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope is a secure confidence in what is coming because it's based in the power of God and the promises of God. So hope is forward-looking, right? Hope is forward-looking, but it's not an iffy forward-looking. It is a confident forward-looking. It is a secure forward-looking knowing what our ultimate home is. Our ultimate hope, and this has been something that Paul has been talking about through this whole letter too, going all the way back to chapter 5, is this idea of confidence in our future hope. And our confidence in our future hope is not dependent on us and how strong we are, how faithful we are, how obedient we are, how righteous we are. Our confidence in our future hope is built on Christ. Because He is our propitiation before the Father. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is the one in whom we stand. So our hope is in Him. And it's a confident hope. But that joy, that peace, that hope, as we are filled and abounding with those things, that enables us, doesn't it, to live the Christian life. And especially, it enables us to live in harmony and unity and love with one another, even when we disagree about things. Because we know that Christ has abundantly blessed us with his grace. He is fulfilling his promises when he is bringing diverse peoples into one body in Christ. And he is ultimately going to glorify himself in a future glorious kingdom of which we are a part. So in that hope, live by faith. I hope this is encouraging to you and I hope that this prayer will be answered for you and me in our lives. Let's bow in prayer together. Father of grace, we thank you and praise you for being the God of mercy and of love. A God who welcomes And embraces sinners and saves them, redeems them with the blood of Christ, makes them a part of his family. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Lord, as we reflect on your grace, as we think about the example of Christ, as we think about your plan of redemption and how you are working out your purposes in the world, God, may that encourage us to accept and welcome one another and to treat one another with love. Help us to be a unified church, a unified body of Christ. And Father, my prayer for that is not just for us here at Eastside and Winfield, but that your people across the world may be a unified, accepting people. Lord, help us by your power to live in hope, to live filled with joy and peace. And God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.